Today, uh, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I've titled the message, One Foundation. And as you're doing that, um, think about your worst report card. Now, I know some of you are sitting there and like, yeah, I had three Bs, and all A's and three Bs, that was horrible. Now, I'm not talking to you. Don't talk to me, because I, I had worse than that. Um, I'm talking to the normal people. <laughs> that had lower grades than B. Um, what did it feel like to come into the living room and hand that to your parents? Um, I remember one little boy, he thought about his report card and he thought, well, I think I have a backup plan here before I deliver it to him. And he went into his dad and he said, uh, Dad, here's my report card, and uh, here's one of yours. <laughs> and uh, the dad said, well, son, I'm going to give you the same thing my father gave me for my report card. <laughs> um, report cards can be good if you have good marks on them. If everything is satisfactory or above, excellent, you know, doing well, when you have a report card, though, that has unsatisfactory, failing, um, needs improvement, there's a note from the teacher on the card, it's like, that's not the best feeling to hand to your parent, because you kind of know that there's going to be some kind of discipline probably coming down the pipe. Well, that's the way I kind of view this letter. Um, Paul gets a report card on the Corinthians. It wasn't a good report card. They had some unsatisfactory things going on in their congregation. And for a pastor with a pastor's heart, he's grieved. But I want us to pay attention to how he addresses it because he does not do it in a harsh, condescending way. He does it with a spirit of love and a pastor's heart to say, you guys are not yet where you need to be, but I want to encourage you to get there. Because we're all in process, aren't we? We're all in process. And when you think about Corinth, I mean, I don't know, is it PowerPoint? Is it not working? I don't see that. There we go. All right, let me go back here. Um, here is uh, Acro-Corinth. Uh, you've heard the word Acropolis. Acro means high. Polis, city, a high city. This was part of the city of Corinth. High up on the city. High up. And it overlooked the rest of the city. And that's where they had a temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love and beauty. It was also very corrupt. It was very corrupt. They had a thousand temple priestess, prostitutes, who offered their services to any men who came in. Men would empty their pockets to give all of their resources to get these services from the women. There was probably even potentially brothels around that. And they're coming in here doing all this stuff in the name of religion. This is where Paul plants a church. There's gross immorality. There's drunkenness. There's disorderly conduct. Paul plants a church. 
The reason I share that with you, it's important because here's what you're learning. Paul went to a broken community with broken people, sinful people, people that were pagan, people that knew nothing about God. He plants this church on his second missionary journey. They're growing, but there are problems in the church. Is it any wonder that there's problems in the church, though? These people were saved out of paganism. They have this mindset that has to be sanctified. And for those that don't understand sanctified, it means set apart. It means to become holy. That's what God desired for them. That's what Paul, as a pastor, that's what every pastor should desire for their church, is that their people be sanctified. And so here is Paul. If we go back to chapter 1, just real quick, go back there, get the background. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers. Notice he is not condescending. He's not harsh. He's just saying, some things have come to my attention. I need to address with you in a spirit of love so that we can build our church on Jesus Christ. The one foundation that will revolutionize the church. So I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because he is the foundation of the church. It is not Paul. It is not Peter. It is not Cephas. It is not Apollos. It is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. The leaders of the church, the responsibility of leadership of any church is to raise Jesus Christ. To build ministry on Jesus Christ. To point pagans to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was all about. So he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church, the focus of the church, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you. And that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, Paul is away. He's in Ephesus. He can't be everywhere. He can't jump on a jet. We didn't have, you know, that email. He didn't have all. So he has to do what's best. He writes this letter. And then he says in verse 11, my brother, some from Chloe's household, who must have maybe been a leader in the church of some sort, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And then he says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Paulus. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And then he challenges them. He comes back to the foundation. Is Christ divided? The foundation on which the church is built, the foundation of our relationship with God, is he divided? No. Was Paul crucified for you? Not hardly. These are rhetorical questions. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful. And then he gets down to verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And of course, he deals with all of the Greek philosophy that was infiltrating into that community. And so here he gets this report card, and he addresses it with a pastor's heart. And says, look... This is not how we build a church on Jesus Christ. There were divisions, there was quarreling, there was jealousy. Now, I think we need to look at why 
those things were there. You see, there's reasons why those things are there. And we're going to look at that. Corinth was a very wealthy town. They had Olymp Olympian games there, Isthmian games there, chariot races, foot races. They had ships that would come in from the Mediterranean, bringing stuff from all over the world. So it was a, a place of great trade and economy. And, but with that come problems. Lots of people and brought lots of problems. We talked about the immorality that was going on. But what, what kind of people then composed the church in Corinth? Well, right here, he tells us in the letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, notice what he says. Or do you not know, he says, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he says, now, he knows there's immorality in their community, in the church, and he addresses it because he's a pastor. He wants people to become holy and righteous. So he says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, they were engaged in idolatry, nor adulterers, relations outside of marriage, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, would you like to be a part of this church? Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now watch. And such were some of you. You're in the church. No wonder there are problems in the church. They're coming out of that lifestyle. They bring this into the church and they can't just be hit a button and say, I'm spiritually mature such were some of you, but here's what he says. But you were washed. God changed you. You were sanctified. God is making you holy. So that those practices dissipate out of your life. Because it's not pleasing to God. It is not how you build a life on Jesus Christ. It's not how you build a church on Jesus Christ. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he goes back to the foundation. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't do this yourself. It's not good works. The foundation is Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. So this tells us the makeup of the church. Do you want to be a part of that church? You are. We have people here with backgrounds. We had time to go through the congregation. Would, we, would I want all my stuff put up on the screen? Not hardly. Not hardly. And I don't think you will either. And so this is important as we move forward as a church. So here's what we're going to look at this morning in 1 Corinthians 3. Three considerations for building our lives on Christ with one foundation. The first consideration is negative. But again, Paul is pointing out an area of growth and development. So it's negative, but so they can understand the positives. The two positives come after the negative. 
So here he begins in 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers, again, he calls them brothers, I could not address you as spiritual. He's talking to the church. Strong. Not condescending, though. But as worldly, mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters, watch that, has one purpose on one foundation. And each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. But by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the first consideration when we think in terms of building our lives, building our church on the one foundation, Jesus Christ, is found in the opening verses of chapter 3. And it is this. Oh. Maybe it didn't. Hmm. Anyhow, I'm not, I don't see it there. It's not showing up. It should be on that slide, actually. That's actually overlooking from the Acro Corinth down onto the city. I'm not sure why that was uh, worth enough, but here's what it is. The first consideration is lack of spiritual progress. Lack of spiritual progress. See, we all are in process. We all should be growing in our relationship with God. We all should be growing in sanctification. And what does Paul say to them? He says, you are mere infants in Christ. You are acting like spiritual babies. And even though you haven't been saved a long time, you shouldn't still be acting like that. That's what he's saying. You should be growing in your faith, which in turn will impact how you relate to one another. Infants in Christ, spiritual immaturity, Problems in the church. What were some of the problems in the church? They had some doctrinal problems. Not quite as bad as some others, but yet they had some doctrinal problems. They're, they're worshiping idols. Eating food to idols. They're abusing the Lord's Supper. They're suing one another, taking one another to court. So they had some personal problems. They had moral problems. There was immorality in the church and they weren't dealing with it in the right way. There was also personal preference problems in the church where I'm following this person, I'm following that person, well my preference is over here, my preference is over here. 
Whenever we push our personal preferences, we push God out. Because you see, the doctrinal issues we have to stake our lives on. When Christ is the foundation, the cross is central, the gospel is central, we cannot negotiate anything in regard to doctrine, in regard to the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ. There are some things that are non-negotiable doctrinally in the church. There are things that are non-negotiable morally. God calls us to moral uprightness, moral integrity, faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness when we're single. God calls us to that, and it causes problems in the church if people aren't morally integrity. It causes problems in church when people push their personal preferences and say, well, this is my preference. I want this. I want this over here. Because with 300 people, you can't do that. Everybody's got a different opinion. And so pretty soon, you're following this personality, and you're following that personality. And pretty soon, what happens is, then you start having organizational struggles. You can't. So it comes back to, we have to look at the scripture and say, what does the scripture say? It's easy to get off track. This church got off track. It wasn't even hard for the Jerusalem church. Remember Acts chapter 2, the Jerusalem church is started in Acts chapter 2. By Acts chapter 5, just three short chapters later, they have their first problem in the church. It didn't take long. It didn't take long. How many people do you have to have in a church to have a problem? Two. Not 300. Two. You know why? Are there marriages in trouble? How many is in the marriage? Two. That's all it takes. You don't have 20 people in the problem. So it isn't the amount. It's our attitude. It's our behavior. All of that is tied into it. But here's what Paul says, you are eating like an infant, you're talking like an infant, you're thinking like an infant, and you're acting like an infant. Oh, there it is, look at that, it magically appeared. <laughs> Amazing. I don't know what I did, I did something different. Yeah. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 to them, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. <laughs> He's challenging the church to grow up in their faith so that Christ as the foundation and the gospel is central in the church and not this one another stuff. We're here to raise up Christ. So Paul says, you need to get that out of your life. And if you are a new Christian, yeah, you are going to be, and that's okay. Just don't stay there. He's saying you need to continue on and grow. It's okay to have spiritual infants in the church. We should have them all the time. Because people should be giving their lives to Christ. But those of us who have matured and walked in the faith for a while should be a model and example to them of how they should behave in Christ as well. For spiritual growth to take place, the Corinthians needed to put their childish ways behind them. So the way we carry ourselves, if we don't reach out to one another, 
If we expect everyone else to reach back to me, um, that's self-centered and selfish. And that kind of attitude and spirit will kill unity in the church. You see, the goal of an infant is what? Self-pleasure. Please me. Meet my needs. Help me. Two little toddlers in the room, and there's, there's a room full of toys, but what happens? They both want the same toy, right? They, 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 they have a million other toys, but no, I, we want the same one. There's a, we're born with that sinful nature, and we all are. We need God to root that out of our lives. The goal of infinite self-pleasure to please self. Spiritual infancy kills spiritual unity. People will follow personalities rather than Christ. The goal of a spiritually mature person is Christ-likeness and unity in the body of Christ. Spiritual immaturity results in weeds. Here's what I mean by weeds. When a couple is first married, I did a lot of marriage counseling my first years of ministry being a singles pastor, one year I did six weddings in one year. I thought I was a professional marriage pastor. And, um, but anyhow, so I would meet with them, and invariably I would have conversations with them after they were married a while. And the one, there was one factor, one word that came back over and over and over after we were married just a few months. And you know what that word was? I can't believe I am so selfish. They learned about their selfishness from being in a marriage. I thought that was interesting. Because what happens is when they first get married, it's kind of neat to watch them. They come into the office, their eyes are glowing. They got this glow on their face. They're so excited. They're googie eyes at each other, lovey-dovey, can't keep their hands off each other, can't stop looking at each other, can't stop talking about each other. And, you know, the man, he's like, hey, I'm Prince Charming. I will swim the deepest ocean for her. I will climb the highest mountain. I will cross the hottest desert and barefoot just to be with her. That's wonderful. 18 months later, she can't get him to take the trash out. <laughs> what happened? What on earth happened? And all of a sudden, why won't he take the trash out? Weeds. Weeds. I planted my first garden after I moved to Huron. And the first year, I'm like, what are those things growing? I didn't plant those. What is that? I bought a hoe. My first hoe I ever owned. And yes, I knew which end to hold. But I'm like, i got to get these weeds out of here. Why? Because they're going to destroy my seed, my good plants that I worked hard to put in the ground. And so weeds are natural. They just grow. And they grow in relationships. And I've had to sit down with couples who have weeds in their marriage. And they're sitting down and they hate each other. That's not the reason they got married. What happened? Weeds. Satan.
tries to plant weeds in marriage. He tries to plant weeds in the church, in people's relationships. He wants to plant weeds because it destroys the beauty that God wants to see in the church. The church glorified, magnified, raising up Jesus Christ so people, when they come in, they hear and see Jesus and not me. Weeds. It comes so natural. Some hindrances to spiritual maturity. You can just jot these down. I didn't put them on the PowerPoint. But I think this is what was true of Corinth. I think it's true of any church. Number one is lack of biblical truth. You see, when people are spiritually immature, oftentimes it's because they don't know really yet what the Bible says. Or they've ignored it. Or rejected it. Lack of biblical truth will always result in spiritual immaturity. So then they find themselves making decisions, going places, being with people. It shouldn't be why, because they lack yet biblical truth. They have no systematic reading or study of God's word. They neglect to have a vibrant prayer life. It results in people thinking like the world. And that's what they were doing. Instead of coming back to God's word. Well, this just feels right. And Paul says this in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't act like the world. Don't be squeezed into the world's mold. And then he says this in 1 Peter. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. When you didn't know God, don't act like that. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's what God has called us to. A second factor in spiritual immaturity, hindrances to spiritual maturity, is sinful attitudes and behavior. What does he tell us here in 1 Corinthians? He says in verse 3, you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not Worldly. Acting like men. Jealousy, quarreling, arguing, not being willing to accept instruction, not being willing to come under the, the authority of the church. Sinful attitudes and behavior. Arguing, fighting, embracing worldly wisdom, pride. A third one is sexual immorality. They were practicing it. There was a maturity in the church. Fourthly, idolatry. Here's what he says in 1 um, Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Get it out of your life. You will have no other gods before me. None. God wants to be 
not only first, but only, exclusive. He says, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Paul saying, God has given me this platform. I did not take it myself. God has given me this platform, this authority, to instruct you, to guide you, to help you in your walk with Christ. And I'm simply carrying out the duty that God's called me to. And then the fifth one, lack of love. This church had a love problem. They weren't loving each other. It was like, no, I'm going over here with this group. I'm going over here. we got all these clicks going on. And so Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, what does he say? Love is patient. They weren't patient. They were rushing ahead, Lord's Supper. Get out of my way. You know patience, rudeness, harshness, arrogance, pride. All those things were a part of the church. No love. And so here's the thing. A lack of biblical love will breed spiritual immaturity. If people don't grow up in their faith and, and mature in their love for Christ, they're not going to mature in their love for one another. We have to mature in our love for Christ so that we will mature in our love for one another. There was a lack of love. They were constantly irritated, resentful, backbiting, gossiping, suing one another. And there was confusion in the church as well. Do you think that Paul as a pastor was just a little grieved over this congregation? Think about being a pastor. You see, weeds, though, how I talked about the marriage and how they grow, these weeds, unfortunately, also grow in families. They grow in communities. And I hate to say it, they grow in churches. Weeds. It comes natural. They grow but here's a bigger question. Who is responsible to pull the weeds? Who's responsible to get the weeds out of the church? The pastor? The leadership? Who's responsible, let's be back up, who's responsible in marriage to get the weeds out of marriage? The man in the house? Does a wife have any, any accountability? If there's two people in marriage and there's weeds, then two people need to be pulling. I think. Because both allow them to come. If there's weeds in the church, I don't think the pastor can get them all out. Nor do I think he's responsible to get them all out. I don't think the leadership is responsible to get them all out either. If you're part of the church, you should be a weed puller. I should be a weed puller. Because weeds destroy relationships. They will. They choke out the good seed. And so sometimes to get those weeds out, you've got to go back and discover how they got there in the first place so that you can realize maybe you've got a faulty system and the system is broken and the system needs to be changed. 
possible. Because it's so easy to get off track and we think we are doing it biblically and maybe we're not doing it biblically. Because I can tell you in marriage cases, there's been some deviation away from God's word. That's why they have weeds. But thankfully they come in to say, how do we get rid of these weeds? We don't even know how they got here, but we want to get rid of them. Wonderful. Let's talk about it. And if you have weeds in your marriage, God wants to get them out. But you know what? He does it as a co-laborer with you. He doesn't pull them. He wants you to pull them. Why? Because that's how you become sanctified. That's how you become more like Jesus Christ. And man, God uses marriages and families and communities and churches to sanctify us. You say, man, I could be a whole lot more easily sanctified. What for that person and that person? No. No, actually, God uses all of them to sanctify us, to humble us. He uses them all. See, problems develop, and then there's unmet expectations. Everything becomes all-consuming. In a family, in a marriage, a couple of children come along. Enter the picture. Weeds continue to grow. Respect is lost. Voice tones change. Expectations are reduced. Arguments become more frequent and heated. And the problems that arise, listen carefully, reveal the spiritual maturity of the couple or of the church. Their level of sanctification becomes tested. Their spiritual maturity shows what they really believe, which determines how the problems get resolved. Because they didn't get to where they were overnight. And they're not going to fix it overnight. It's called a process. They did not set out to intentionally run into being frustrated with each other. It was a process. If in a marriage the husband or wife refused to pull the weeds, the weeds went. If the congregation of a church refuses to pull the weeds, the weeds win. That's tragic. Because that doesn't have to be. We all have to take our responsibility and say, I gotta be a weed puller. I don't want these weeds to be in between these relationships. They mean too much, and so does the gospel of Jesus Christ and the foundation on which we say we're building our lives. A quarrelsome person who is constantly combative and argumentative with others is more than likely not walking in a right relationship with God. I don't know how they could be. The weeds start in our own hearts and minds 
And you know what some people's answer is? Let's get the round up. We can fix this in five minutes. No, you will destroy all the plants around it that are good. You can't do that. There's no quick fix. There's no easy fix. It takes time to walk through it. But in that process, everyone in the process grows and becomes more like Jesus. The process is just as important, if not more important, than what is going on. It really is. Because it reveals the spiritual maturity of the church. And that's what Paul is challenging this church with. Well, let me quickly just mention these other two. that are positive. Look at your spiritual calling. You have got to go back to what did God call me to? He called me to salvation. He called me, as Peter says, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look what he says even in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. Look in chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy together. He's called us to holiness. That is our spiritual calling, to be holy people, to be righteous people, to be spiritually mature people, not to stay where you are. I don't remember who said it, but they said to dwell above with saints we love. That would be grace and glory. To live below... With saints we know, that's a different story. And what we're all in preparation for eternity. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord is faithful. Called you. Look in chapter 1, verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called by God. When the Holy Spirit put his finger on sin in your life and called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, is that a great calling or what? That's how we live then. That's our foundation. Jesus Christ is our foundation. I've been called to Jesus Christ. I need to be a representative of Christ. My relationship with Christ will impact every other relationship and how I treat it. Our identity is grounded in the bedrock of our calling by God through Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to skip ahead. But he talked also in there about the fact that he urged the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which they were called. And he told them to walk in humility and gentleness with patience to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me just give you the last one here. Skip ahead to the three verses. Learn to serve Christ together. That's why we have to be folks. Because we are working together. What does he say in verse 5? 1 Corinthians 3. What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? They're servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. 
He's doing planting, he's doing watering, but they're serving Christ together. They're magnifying Christ. They're ministers. They're servants. They're instruments of God. They're empowered by God. Both. They're gifted by God. Both. Gifted differently, but gifted. They are servants who depend on God. Look in verse 6 and 7. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. You and I can't grow anything but weeds. That's all we can grow is weeds. God is the one who grows in our life. And they have a single purpose in what they're doing. So my challenge to us today is, what's going on in your household? Is Christ the foundation? Do you have some weeds growing in your marriage? Do you have some weeds growing with fellow believers? You need to be told. You have weeds growing with family. You need to be told. For us to grow spiritually, we got to pull the weeds because it's choking off the seed. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I just would encourage you, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I don't know what the foundation of your life is, but it's not going to get you through very well. Jesus Christ died on the cross and has called us into a relationship with him. It's a calling. He calls us out of darkness into light. And I trust that you will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're a newer believer and you're like, man, I've got a lot to learn. Um, I've been saved over 40 years. I still have a lot to learn. I don't mean to discourage you. I'm just saying it's a lifelong pursuit. Those of us who have been saved a while and have been in the church, though, we are to be the models. We are to be the representatives. We are to be the example. Even as Paul told them, follow me as I follow Christ. What a statement. Amen. But, oh, you can hear his pastor's heart. Get the weeds out of your congregation so you can grow, so you can be holy and honor the Lord. Get the weeds out of your life. Is there anything in your life that lacks moral integrity? When you look at the report card? Or are you a morally integral person? Is Christ the priority of your life? How about idolatry? Is there any idols in your life that Christ is not first? Would you give it to the Lord? And as parents and grandparents, you are teaching and modeling for your kids and grandkids. When there is a problem in our family, we're going to pull the weeds. When there's a problem in the church, I'm going to help pull the weeds. You're teaching them incredible lessons. Or you're teaching them a horrible lesson and how you respond. May God help the present church to be a weed-pulling church and a 
received that the church of Boston. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.